Hello golfers, today's episode is brought to you by Trackman Golf. Today's episode is also powered by Acro Golf Shafts. Proudly Canadian, Acro Golf Shafts use only the highest quality materials to create the most innovative golf shaft designs for custom club fitting. No shaft company is more dedicated to the professional club fitter than Acro Golf Shafts. Go to www.acrogolf.com to find a certified dealer near you. And also today's episode is brought to you by Superspeed Golf. Would you like to hit the ball 20 yards farther? With the Superspeed Golf training system, this can become a reality. Superspeed uses the scientifically proven methods of overspeed training to help increase how fast your body can move during your swing. This works with a set of three specifically weighted clubs used only three times per week, 10 minutes a session, following online training protocols. Join over 700 tour pros by getting your set at www.superspeedgolf.com. Use the code SHKEEN, S-H-K-E-E-N, to receive 10% off your order. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of our podcast. I'm your host, Brandon. And as I mentioned last week, this week we have a special guest, actually two special guests joining us before our main interview with Nick Starchuk. Shaheen uh, was able to get Bob Weeks and James Duthie from TSN to join us for about half an hour and kind of talk about their experience covering the Masters this year at Augusta. Uh, and they pretty much talk about all the unique things that they went through, you know, having no patrons there, how the weather affected play, and a couple of cool and funny stories about some of the golfers there. So hopefully you guys enjoy this before listening to our uh, awesome interview with Nick. And uh, so that's it. Here you go. What's up, bro? Hey, dude. How you doing, man? Pretty good. How about you? I'm good. That sound okay? Uh, yeah, it's pretty clear. Is it too loud for you? I'm gonna adjust it. Maybe a little bit, Bren. Mm, yeah, James, talk a little bit. One, two, three, four. James Duffy reporting live from his car in Vaughan, Ontario, outside Peak <laughs> Performance Golf. There you go. We're good. good. When was the last time you hit balls? Uh, it's a good question. Too long? Maybe. Uh, like, actually maybe. hit balls. I'm not talking about, like, in your net, in your house. <laughs> I haven't even done that in two weeks or so. Okay, well, that's because you had the busy week. Two weeks, I'd say. Two weeks? I think I played the last time I played was Sunday. I don't remember if we spoke about it. Have you ever won the lottery to play the course? Yeah, bro. Didn't we? We didn't talk about it. Oh, yeah, we uh, did. We did. We did. On the last pod, did we? Yeah, I I can't remember anymore, to be honest. I'm the same way. When when you do these things and you're doing one every week, it it gets lost. So, uh, yeah, I won four, four years ago I played. Fuck, dude. How different uh, did the course Isn't look? it a crime that like I've played and you haven't? <laughs> I mean, you can rub it in even better. more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like we had uh, David Hearn was our analyst the last two years at the Masters. And everybody on our crew, all we'd say when we're having dinner every night was, can you believe we all played Augusta and you haven't? <laughs> <laughs> Guys like been on tour for 10 years. That's the difference, right? It's like, okay, I'm a coach, I get it, but like a guy like that who literally plays with these guys week in, week out, has never played the course, that's a crime. Oh, I mean, and I think that's what makes the play special is that uh, unless you get an invite from somebody, that's the only way you're getting there is if you uh, get invited to play there. So, yeah. Or is it, uh, you, sorry, if you actually make it, yeah. I was going to ask, um, how different did the course look physically 
Because it didn't look, obviously, you know, the flowers aren't blooming and stuff. Did it just look dull when you got there, or did it actually look like they kept it pretty good? Are we potting already? I mean, you can answer it. We can roll with this, sure. <laughs> um, we, yeah, can cut, was... we can cut stuff in and out. Don't worry, don't worry about who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was... Um... No, everything I said was fine. I just didn't know we were uh, rolling and recording yet. All right, uh, let's shit. Let's shit on we, David Hearn. All right, what do you have to tell me about this guy? No, I'm joking. Just an asshole. Just an asshole. No, he's a good guy. <laughs> um, it it was actually, if this makes sense, like I know I I read some stuff that people thought it looked a little shaggier than it does in April, and it did. Like the rough, and you know, I think you saw on TV some of the areas around the greens, like you know, the hill at 12 and 15, a lot more balls seemed to stop, and it. it I don't know. If, how much it showed up on your HD TVs that it was just a little grown in there. Um, but in general, just because there was no fans, I thought the course looked more beautiful than it ever had uh, to have no grandstands, to have no people tromping around. The one thing that you get at Augusta, because usually there's rain sometime during the week and you never see it on TV, but the areas where, where the patrons walk end up getting really muddy and uh, they have to pull in that green, like, horse manure crap that they put over it to, to make the pathways reasonable so it stinks. And uh, none of, because there was no people there, none of that happened. So everything was perfect all over the place. And it was just really neat to, you know, stand on 15 and be able to see 16 green from 15 green and have it not blocked out. And then in that hill beside 16 where everybody sits, uh, you know, completely empty. That I, I just thought it looked absolutely stunning uh first of all i think bob just joined us hello there what's up bob nothing everything's great hello james haven't seen you for a long time yeah <laughs> let's uh let's get into bob um instagramming live me lip syncing uh backstreet boys on the bus home <laughs> fair or foul i say foul uh, there was all of four people watching, so I don't think it, yeah, I think more people have just found out about it with us talking about it. Well, no, Bob, I don't know. It was you made my brother laugh because he said he was one of the four people. <laughs> there you go. Bob, I tell you, like, uh, I'm just going to get into this right now. Um, things I learned about Bob this week, that should be a regular segment on your podcast. Uh, uh, he does a wicked Mick Jagger for one, <laughs> does an amazing Mick Jagger and, uh, just trying to think of what else you lip sync to that was brilliant. You were pretty good on the Corey Hart too, were you not? <laughs> I think I think we were all pretty good on all of it, to be honest. But uh, you were the king of the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> I how take big, a lot of pride in that. How big was the entire crew that went down this year? There was actually ten of us, if you include our two bus drivers, eight uh, eight TSN workers, and um, and then uh, we had our um, had our two drivers who were sharing the sharing the ride there, there and back. Did you guys all stay in the same place, like in the same house? Did you guys rent it out? Yeah, yeah we, we did. It, like ahead, part dude. of the we, – we do that every year, and we've rented the same house now for about four years. Uh, but this year in particular, you had to. I mean, the conditions of us going down there were that we had to stay in our own bubble. So the, the 10 people, including the bus drivers, all got tested for COVID twice. And then we went down together on the bus. We weren't really allowed to go anywhere except our house or the golf course. So we, we remained essentially in that bubble for the entire eight days. So we, we all had to stay together in the house. Uh, I think Bob would concur with me that uh, we love our entire crew, but living in a house together is easier than living in a bus together for 20 hours. 
<laughs> yeah, at least you can go to your own room when you're in the uh, <laughs> the bus. The bus driver, the bus drive sounds really fun and everything, and it was even going down and coming back was really good for about the first three to four hours, maybe, and then it kind of got long, and then you're kind of worried there's only one toilet in the <laughs> there, and uh, but it was uh, it was good to get to know everybody, and and actually, I you know a lot of times when we go down to the Masters, as James said, we all stay in the house, but a lot of times we're going out for dinner. And to stay at home and to kind of, you know, we played cards. We did, we had a lot of uh, good social activities at home and I didn't mind it actually. We had probably had just as good meals as we've had mm-hmm. before. Yeah. Was, was this the first time that Graham was part of the, the, the analyst team? Yes. Uh, yeah, we'd, we'd wanted him for years. Uh, I mean, we loved having David Hearn and Brad Fritch before that, but uh, uh, I think we've been asking, I, Bob and I have both been asking Graham for multiple years to do it. And his answer was always, uh, I'm a player. I don't want to be an analyst until uh, I'm not playing anymore. But I think, you know, with his injuries over the last couple of years, he rethought that. And I think Bob was, Bob could probably lend more insight. He was able to talk him into doing it this year. Yeah. And I think, I think the one thing that, as you said, not to take anything away from David or Brad is that, that uh, Graham has played in the masters. He played there one year and he's also very, outspoken is not quite the right word but he's not afraid to kind of call a spade a spade I guess he's he's a a guy who can who can sort of talk about the players without I don't think you know worrying about anything else and um, his analysis on a lot of the greens on a lot of the play about the greens I should say about um, you know getting around on certain holes uh, was just really I thought exceptional and um, and he for a first timer on television I'll tell you he, he was pretty smooth well, I was gonna. I was gonna say. I mean, as somebody who's actually played the course during tournament week, he must have different insight than what the previous guys have brought to the show. So obviously, that brings a very different perspective. Um, first thing I want to ask is, uh, I mean, me and James have got into it a little bit, but just the experience without having any patrons there, being able to follow groups, being able to stand super close when a guy's hitting. Because I'm sure that you guys had some off time where you're able to actually go out and watch. How how much different is that? And I guess, James, you kind of mentioned this to me too. Like, How much better is that without the fans there for the media specifically? Go ahead, Bob. Um, you know, I'll give, you, I'll give you one example. So when we first got onto the golf course uh, on Thursday, we were walking out to find Tiger, and Tiger was on the second green. So we were walking down there, and all of a sudden we sort of stopped because Tiger was lining up a putt. We were probably 100 yards away, but you know how these guys are. They, they can hear an uproar of butterflies in the next meadow. So we stopped to make sure we weren't distracting him. And all, all of a sudden I realized, I think actually James was telling me, hey, step back a bit. All, all of a sudden I realized we were standing in the middle of the eighth fairway and with no ropes there, <laughs> you just kind of didn't know. And also there were, the other thing that got to me was there were no, there were parts of the golf course I hadn't seen before because of bleachers, um, you know, big grandstands that were built there. And in some cases, those grandstands were also landmarks as to, you know, where you go and where you uh, plan your route. So those were the two biggest takeaways for me. And also just how eerily quiet it was. Even, even on 18, after Dustin uh, tapped in, you know, there was a round of applause. But as he walked off the, golf, off the golf course, there was nothing. There was silence. It was like he had just finished the club championship at, you know, the XYZ Country Club. And those were the, the kind of things that really stood out for me. I, uh, I thought, like, selfishly, it was the greatest masters I'll ever cover. Um, just because <laughs> you, told, you told me that too. <laughs> yeah. It, it's so hard to, uh, 
you know, Bob's been there for a quarter century and it's so hard to cover the tournament on the golf course because there's no electronic scoreboards and because you can't have your cell phone and because the crowds are so large, if you really want to follow Tiger Woods, you know, you're, you have no shot. You're going to see the tip of his cap or his follow through. And that's about it sometimes, unless you stay on one hole and, and wait for him. And for us to be able to, whether it be follow Tiger or follow DJ on Sunday and be right there and watch it all was just such a treat from a journalist perspective. Uh, the best example I can use is on 17 T. So this is Dustin Johnson on 17 T on Sunday, two holes from winning the masters. Uh, Puffy, uh, my producer buddy and I, we had to step back because our shadow was covering his ball on the tee. <laughs> so and now we, we didn't Dustin didn't have to ask us we realized right away because we were standing right next to the tee blocks our shadows were on his ball so we had to take two steps back that's something I, I won't experience on Sunday at a Masters ever again and so for me particularly I think you know Bob is a way more experienced in covering golf tournaments than I do it was such a treat to be able to watch these guys you know really up close like it was you know like it was some uh Canadian tour event that didn't get any fans or something, and yet it was the greatest player players in the world. I um, I I definitely want to ask a couple more questions on that, but the first thing I need to know is what was um, everyone's not experience, but what was everyone's first mindset when Tiger played the twelfth hole and had that whole kind of disaster take place? Like, did everybody kind of just freak out in the media, or was everybody talking about it immediately? Yeah, I would, I would say that, you know, we were all sort of stunned. We were, we, we were watching that and, and just the, um, you know, you couldn't believe the, what you were seeing. Okay, the first swing maybe, and then I saw him reach down and throw up a piece of grass. Okay, so he got caught by the wind. That happens a lot. In fact, I think we were in the uh, media center, and I think I looked at either you, James, or maybe at Jamie Rydell, and I said, I said, well, that's sort of like exactly sort of the, the 180 from last year when the other guys got caught with the wind and Tiger didn't. But then when he did it a second time, and then in the bunker, I mean, the bunker stance was was awkward to begin with. Um, you know, you're you're just sort of. I think I was sort of stunned by the fact that here it was a ten, and then when we found out that it was the first ten in competition with after what I don't know what it was, James, you had the number twenty three thousand some odd holes. Mm -hmm. um, I think the the second part of that story though that needs to be told is five under over the next six holes, which is you know that's pure tiger right there. But certainly, certainly seeing him make a ten was something that you don't think you're ever going to see. Probably, it reminded me, uh, you know, why these guys are so unbelievable because I know that I made a fourteen in our club championship two years ago, and I was one under through like twelve holes and in contention and made a 14 and I could not swing a golf club for the next four holes after because I was so bad at myself. And it rem I remember Ernie, do you remember Ernie a few years ago? Uh, what is it? Seven putted the first hole. Yeah. And made, Started the tournament, a, yeah. made a 10 or an 11, right? Something like that. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that would destroy the average golfer. Like they would, sh you know, just could not function for the rest of the way. And ditto on Tiger on, on a 10 there for an average guy. And for him to birdie five of the next six holes, and I think Ernie that day only shot, you know, he shot even or one over or one under the rest of the day. And to me, that's just amazing how mentally strong, you know, particularly Tiger, the strongest of them all. But those guys are to be able to bounce back from things like that and made me realize again how incredibly mentally weak I am. <laughs> 
I mean, you have to assume the second he makes that 10, he's saying, fuck this, I'm going to get back to even par for the rest of the round kind of thing, you know? Yeah, but that's one thing to say that and actually do it uh, is, is something else. And, he, and yeah. he, he did walk off that, he walked off that green almost chuckling. Like there was, there was a little bit of a consternation, but as he walked to the next tee, you could see they showed him with a smile on his face kind of. So, and I think that's also something about Tiger that's probably changed in the last, I don't know, 10 years since I've been covering him is, you know, he's, he's not afraid to kind of laugh at himself a little bit or, or the situation that he's involved in. Um, and I thought that might've helped him a little bit as well. I think it helped that he also was nowhere near contention, to be honest, because if, yeah. if he's in the top 10 and he makes that blow up, I mean, I think his reaction would have been very different. But Well, imagine uh, if that happened last year. As Bob said, you know, when, when the four guys went in the water last year and that ended up being the turning point of the, of the tournament, if that happened, you know, the postscript of that, it would probably be remembered a thousand times more than it will likely be remembered now. Yeah, like the biggest collapse in Tiger's history kind of thing mm-hmm. from his comeback. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So just to kind of revert back a little bit to the whole no patrons thing. I mean, I, I guess there's some things you guys probably could say that you heard and some things that you can't. Is there any funny stories that you guys came across, uh, that you probably wouldn't have been able to hear if there was patrons around, but because it was quiet, maybe you heard a funny conversation or two. Uh, I'll go first, Bob. Uh, I was, uh, I witnessed the entire, uh, Bryson DeChambeau meltdown at the third hole on, <laughs> I, I, my days are mixed up. I think it was Friday, right? Uh, yeah. When he, uh, when he lost the ball on the rough there. Yeah. So we happened that by the way, um, you know, talking about what Bob said of seeing different parts of the course, I, because there was so many fans, I'd never realized, uh, that maybe one of the single best parts of the golf course is, uh, you know, for the fans who don't see it on TV, two green, seven green, three T are sort of all right next to each other. And then you could even you can even see eight T, which is about a hundred yards back. So you could stand in one spot and see two green, seven green, three T, and eight T. And we stood there for a while, and Deshambo came up to uh, to three T. And as, as the producers were making fun of me, Jamie and, and Puffy, because I they had painted blue lines instead of having ropes as to where you could stand. And I went to the letter of the law and, and stood as close as I could. So I was basically on top of the T blocks when Deshambo was teeing off on three. And first of all, that was something to witness. I'd never seen the new Bryson tee off up close before. And the, uh, just the amount of movement in his body, which you catch a little bit on TV, but what you don't hear is the breathing. And it's, uh, it's almost comical. I compared it to a weightlifter or a powerlifter in the Olympics where he's in, in the few seconds before he hits the ball, it's, <laughs> it's, and I, I could sort of see, I think, as, you know, other golfers chuckling a little bit maybe to that. Um, but anyway, he hit his ball and he thought it was okay. He said to his caddy, just pulled it a little. I hit it perfect. And then the next group on the tee was Patrick Reed, Paul Casey, and Tony Finau. And they're sitting and waiting. And, you know, seven minutes go by and here comes Bryson back in the cart because he couldn't find his ball. And I don't know, it was just a, a kind of cute little exchange. He kind of goes, sorry, guys, very sheepishly. And Reed's like, you're all right. And, and, um, and then he tees off again. And, and I, I did listen to the three of those guys and their caddies talk about Bryson for about 10 minutes. It wasn't really derogatory. It was more, you know, more, more Reed was asking Finau if he thought he could get the same club speed if he really tried. Cause as you know, Tony has all that power, but he only does sort of a half swing. And, and he was saying that he could probably generate the miles per hour. And then Reed was giving him a hard time because he outdrove him. 
on too. So I, I just really enjoyed that little, you know, the friendly banter. You'd think it's, you know, um, it's Augusta. It's one of the biggest tournaments in the world. But for these guys that are out there every week, they're still got to spend five hours together and, and shoot the breeze for however long they want to. I, I didn't hear overhear any conversations, but I will tell you an experience I had. I was walking following Adam Hadwin at one point, and uh, I was talking with his wife, Jessica, and uh, who's an absolute superstar. And we were chatting, I think, by the 6T at one point, and uh, Adam had to uh, call over and say, hey, guys, keep quiet, because we were, we were bothering him. We weren't even paying attention to what was going on out there, but... But it was eerily quiet, uh, and you could hear a pin drop, so you did have to kind of watch what you were saying and uh, how loud you were saying it. I would imagine that every group that was following the people playing was essentially either media or just their wives, right? Yeah, so when we follow, we followed Tiger for nine holes on uh, Friday, I guess, or Thursday. I've, like I said, I've lost track here. Um, I think it was his back nine on Thursday, so he, had a, he was four under on the front, which was the back nine, and he played the first nine holes last and he played great but just couldn't make a putt and you know i would say there was probably 15 people total uh you know half of those would be officials and then there were peyton manning was there who i did not know was a member uh by the way bob probably knew that and i was wondering how he got on because i didn't know either actually yeah apparently nobody could get on Uh, i was looking for wayne gretzky the whole week and uh you know, only Paulina was on there. And I, I heard afterwards that Gretz couldn't even get on because they were just, you basically let one spouse and, and that was it, one person in. So anyway, Peyton Manning was there following Tiger, Tiger's girlfriend. And uh, he was playing with Ogletree, the amateur. And so his parents were there and myself and uh, a couple of our guys. So there was, you know, seven people in the gallery, uh, Tiger's smallest ever at Augusta, I'm sure. And that record will never be beaten. I think the uh, the rule was they were allowed to bring their their spouse one their spouse I guess one family member and then their teacher and those are the only two people that would go on there and then I saw a few um, you know there were a few volunteers here and there and there were some people who just either they were members or somehow they had the wherewithal um, to get themselves yeah. <laughs> onto that I think maybe they were I'll tell you what the wherewithal is because I will say this on Sunday the only people there were filthy stinking rich <laughs> you just like it was you, you know how you just know when you're around like uh, a little bit older wealthy people those were the only people uh, besides the people bob mentioned that were there on sunday so i think it was members and maybe a few incredibly well-connected people but that's about it okay so the, la- the last thing i want to talk about is the um the weather and obviously the scoring average was super low on the course because it was wet. And I mean, you saw guys plugging five irons. It was like kind of a joke, almost how, how easy it was to uh, be more accurate with your iron shots. Do you guys think that uh, there's almost going to be an asterisk, not necessarily on DJ winning the tournament, but on this whole idea of like lowest scoring average in major history. Go ahead, Bob. Uh, you know, I, I've been there, as, as James said, this is my 25th time there. And I've been there when it's been wetter than it was um, this week. I don't remember, I don't ever recall balls plugging on the greens, like burying halfway down the, the diameter of the ball down the green. Uh, but I don't, I don't think so. I mean, there was some wind on Saturdays or on Sunday as well. I think you still got to get your ball around there. And there were, you know, mud balls to deal with. There were other things that affected the, the, the play. Um, you know, I, I think it says more about 
about the a the talent of the golfers and the a, b the the length of the golf course that these guys were able to to play it. I will say that this a couple of guys told me that because the greens were a little bit slower, it allowed them to be a little bit more aggressive with their putting. And so, if there's anything that stands out amongst court condition, uh, I think that would be it. But but I don't take any. I'm not I'm not going to put any asterisk when I write about it. Uh, it. It's weird because it is. I mean, all the numbers say that's the you know the greatest Masters performance ever. I don't think it'll be remembered that way. Uh, just maybe partially because of of the year we are in, and you know probably whether Bob's right, but probably the conditions will play into it a little bit. The people will say it just didn't play the same as April, and it was a November Masters, and and there wasn't the drama. So I don't think that uh, it's hard to tell, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, people say, was that the greatest? I, I think it should definitely be in the conversation for the greatest master's performance ever to make four bogeys on that golf course over four days is ludicrous. Um, but I, I just have the feeling that it won't be, this isn't one that we're, it certainly isn't like, where were you moment? I think 30 years from now or something. So Someone had brought up a good point online that I read, which was like, you know, it might be different because DJ is the guy in contention and it's not like a first timer trying to win a, a major. You know, this is a guy who's obviously been there, done that for like 10 years plus. But you have to assume that if it was a different person in his position, you know, having spectators there and the sounds that people are making when they're making birdies from other holes has to be completely changing your experience as a guy who's trying to win a tournament. You know, DJ shrugs it off. It's seemingly besides maybe the interview that I saw at the end there where he actually showed some emotion, but you know, put it in a situation where let's say like you remove DJ from the equation and it's Ricky Fowler trying to win that major and you're hearing roars from a guy like DJ who makes an Eagle somewhere behind him. That has to be so different than like, you know, the guy makes Eagle and it's dead silence on the golf course where you can keep kind of going about your business. I think I think that would have affected more guys like Abraham Answer and Sung JM and you know guys who haven't been in the heat on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, Ty, uh, Dustin has played in so many majors and so many final rounds and so many final groups. Uh, I'm not sure it would have affected him as much. In fact, he might have fed off it a little more. Whereas you know it could have affected the other guys a little bit. We'll never know, obviously. So, um, but it, it's it was definitely a factor out there. You guys want to mention one quick thing on Sung JM? Because everyone seems to be talking about this guy like his ball striking is unreal. I haven't seen it in person yet, but supposedly it's uh, something to watch. I wish I had. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, it, is, it is something. I, I, I'm not, uh, you know, you would go there and probably see it differently than me. They, they all hit it so well. Right. I'm not sure I'm nuanced enough to tell the difference. Well, that, that, that is telling me something. If anything, it's saying that it doesn't seem like it stands out from what the herd are doing. No, I would say it was, it was pretty great. Uh, it, it was pretty great. But, uh, yeah, you're right. Like, not it wasn't something where, like, when you see DeChambeau hit a tee ball or anything, I didn't, I didn't notice it and go, wow, that's the best ball striker I've seen. But I'm sure that you might see it differently if you were there. His, his short game was... I mean, magical to watch, especially on Sunday. The sun, number of times he got up and down in different lives, yeah. different situations. I thought that that's what stood out for me. Nice, dude. 15, well, uh, I, I think you guys probably saw the shot, but he hit it so far over the green on 15. And, you know, almost down to it was a foot from the pond on 16. And the pin, as you know, was back. So it was just, it was just death. And for him to hit, he hit it to three feet or whatever, I think, and made the putt. To me, that was a, 
that was a lunacy up and down and you're right then 60 in the next hole same thing it was in an awkward spot off the green so bob's right that that's the thing i think that guy's going to be a factor in in numerous majors over the next decade i mean if you're if you're trevor immelman who's the captain of the international team in the next president's cup you got to be pretty pumped about that leaderboard with answer and sung jm and cameron smith and dylan fratelli and Corey connors i mean uh, the number of non-European, non-American players up there was was pretty interesting. How motivated are the Canadians to try to make the Cup in 24, knowing that it's at home? Oh, well, they're pumped about making it at any time, I can tell you that. They're right now, right now, if you talk to them all, the biggest battle is for the Olympic team. And, you know, if it was uh, if it was on schedule a year ago, it would have been easy. It would have been Corey Connors and uh, Adam Hadwin. But now, you know, Mac Hughes is the top Canadian. I think Nick Taylor wants to have a run for it. So... Uh, there's there's a four way battle and there could be more guys who come up and have a good couple of weeks but uh, that's I can tell you nobody wants to miss out on that opportunity. Yeah, that's got to be something. I mean, I don't I don't know. I've never 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 going to get there, so I guess you'll never really know. But I can only imagine that it's something super motivating, especially considering it happens so few and in between. Well, the great thing about having Delat, uh, and I'm a golf geek as you know, and so I like to bug him and ask all sorts of questions while we're sitting playing cards at night. And he's, he was really great. Like, I think he likes talking about it because he is the same way and uh, talked a lot about the president's cup. And, and I said, you know, is it awkward in the room? Is it, it's obviously not like a Ryder cup where you don't know these guys really well. And he said, it is, you know, there's not quite the same, you know, hardcore camaraderie, uh, you know, with language barriers and such, but you, if you can remember the way Graham was when he played and that, how much it meant to him. And, you know, he played, what did he beat Jordan Spieth? I think, and he, he played very. Didn't didn't he have like a crazy hole out at the end of one of the rounds at some point? Yeah, he played awesome. Bob would remember better probably, but he, he just said it was one of the great. Shot when he was playing with Jason Day, and then came to yeah. uh, I think to tie Phil Mickelson and Jordan Spieth, and he came out of the bunker and, and gave a high five that I think may have dislocated Jason Day's arm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh shit, that's good. Well, guys, man, I, I I appreciate you guys coming on to talk about the Masters. I mean, I wanted to get this out to people as soon as possible since it just happened. But, um, yeah, for you guys to fit uh, half an hour into your schedules means a lot. No problem. Uh, no, I, I, my pleasure, buddy. Well, James, uh, get ready because now we have, uh, we have a little sesh coming up. But, uh, yeah. Bob, Bob I, uh, I appreciate that, man. <laughs> we see. Just, just know that I'm working with this guy all winter. So when we get out in the spring... It's going to be, your eyes are going to be wide open. It's going to be a brand new Sun J. James. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that. I might have to sneak in the back door and take some, get some lessons here too myself. <laughs> Bug, pressure's on me now, eh? Yeah, got it. <laughs> All, right, All right, guys. All right, have a good one, bud. Take care, boys. I want to thank Bob and James again for giving us their time and talking about their unique experience that they had at Augusta this year. Not only covering it, but like I said, you know, we're witnessing the entire event without any patrons and uh, just in general, the different weather that had happened there and stuff. So that was pretty cool to listen to. Now I'll pass it over to Shaheen and Nick. And for those of you who don't know, Nick Starchuk is a PGA award-winning teacher. He teaches at a TPC Toronto. Uh, very insightful. He's a Capital Golf Canadian partner. Seeing as it was his second time on our podcast, it was fun to hear his voice again and talk about putting. And uh, they pretty much dive into that uh, in a bit more detail than the last time. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. 
There was a little bit of a technical issue with our microphone, uh, which we only realized a little later and we didn't want to restart. So uh, just bear with us. The sound quality isn't as great as our usual episodes, but uh, still clear enough to hear what Shaheen was saying. So here's the interview. All right, we are uh, back with Nick for the second time on our pod. When did you, do you remember when you first came on? That was about last year, one of the first few episodes we had done, if I'm not mistaken, no? Yeah, I want to say last October, maybe last September. It was about, yeah, I think we started the podcast last October, and I think you came on, it had to have been, I think, like late November or something like that. Yeah, maybe that was it, yeah. Um, and when you last came on, obviously we, we spoke a lot about your background and, and how you had uh, gotten into the game and stuff, but we had just barely scratched the surface about fighting because I'm not mistaken, I think you were pr- still pretty early on in your um, learning and teaching experience with Capto, the putting system. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can only imagine that after 12 months of, of experiencing with it and more features coming out and stuff that you have a lot more that you want to talk about in that regard. Yeah, it's uh, it's such an in-depth system. It's 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 so cool to see not just the the similar stuff that most putting systems have, you know, where the path is, what the face is, the launch, but all the stuff that's a little bit deeper. It's 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 a it's a learning experience almost every month. I mean, I don't doubt that one bit. As a starting point, just for the people who are maybe listening and for the first time on this, how would you define the difference between a product like Capto versus a product like Sandpad Lab, which obviously is probably the most known in putting? Yeah, I mean, I think Sam Putt Lab was the first one to come out. So having some type of device that measures what the golfer, what the putter is doing, um, I mean, we didn't really have that. So Sam came out. Um, I have my Sam. I've had it for well, my Sam, two thousand six. Um, so I've I had the Sam for a long time. And when Capto came out, and I got to see some of the variations that they offer, and not only that, but it's a portable walkabout system. I was really intrigued because, you know, I do a lot of stuff on the golf course. Um, maybe not this year, COVID season, but years past. I mean, I was playing 150, 170 rounds a year. A lot of those are with my students. So being able to put the Capto on the player's putter and watch how they, how they use the putter based on long putts, short putts, breaking putts, it always changed. So it gave me such an inside look at it. Um, where before, you know, I'd have like a hockey bag with my Sam and a laptop and a table. Um, you'd have to bring that out and it was, it was cumbersome to get onto the driving range, let alone bring onto the second green. So when it comes to Capto, man, the portability and the fact that it's small and it doesn't take long to calibrate, it's, it's such a usable tool. Do you think that the biggest pro or advantage of a system like Capto as opposed to Sam is that, is the fact that you can bring it around pretty quickly? Absolutely. I think that when I talk to, you know, the, the guys on tour that are coaching putting, um, they say the same thing. They say that it's always about um, having the ability to be portable, walking around the green um, and not having to re- to set up your space again. Um, you know, the last time that I was at a PGA Tour event, um, I was on the putting green, obviously, and one of the guys from Quintech came out and they had their Quintech system. I mean, that's a serious system that sets up once. You put it on the ground and you roll putts to the same spot and you kind of measure what you're doing. So the fact that it's walkabout is huge. And that's where, that's why I think we've got so many of the tour coaches, the traveling coaches into this because they can throw it in their pocket and connect it to their phone. Any, uh, do you have an idea right now of how many coaches on tour are using Capto? Wow. Um, or maybe I'm like, a, 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 yeah, just a ballpark number, let's say. There's five or six out there right now. I mean, when we're talking about putting coaches in general, there's probably seven or eight. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, the only actually, guy that I know let's be realistic. There's not a lot of putting coaches out there to begin with. No, but I mean, the only guy that I know that's not using capital right now that I've been trying to for a while is Mr. John Graham. Um, he's still loving his Sam, um, which is great. He's having awesome success with it. But when, when the other coaches are on the green, um, you know, Phil Kenyon or, or David, Orr, they love using their capto. They're fantastic ambassadors for us and players too. I mean, um, uh, last year when I mentioned, I was at the, the Orlando event, uh, the Bay Hill event, um, mm-hmm. two of the players were interested in it. We got Ian Poulter into one, um, and we got uh, Scott Brown into one. So they love this, the, the chance to use this on tour, but then send their feedback to their coach. So, you know, Scott Brown was sending feedback back to his coach, Tim, in Mississippi and saying, hey, like, this is what I'm getting. What do you think we should do? So it makes that, that virtual lesson pretty cool, too. Right. I mean, I, I guess in that regard, it's very similar to what the trackman's able to do of getting reports out to your coach right away. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Um, and so what, uh, what have been the latest features that came out that wasn't on it, let's say, a year ago when you first started using it? Well, um, I don't believe we've made any adjustments to it uh, since December. Mm-hmm. Um, we still have the same parameters, the same look, the same interface. The things that we're, that we're including and in in, in improving on it is there's a practice module. So similar to when a player hits, you know, 10, seven irons with their track man, and you can see on the driving range, the dispersion and the circle, we're doing the same thing with putting now. So we can start to see the dispersion of how somebody rolls a 10 or 12 foot putt. Um, the other really cool thing I should have, we do have something cool. It was out before. I just didn't know, I didn't know much about it, but now that I've used it, we have a simulator option in Capto in the software, uh, within the app where we can, it, it's kind of neat. It, it kind of over, it flies you over the fairway onto a golf course and it drops you on the green and it says, Hey, first hole, you have an 18 foot putt. It breaks a little bit left to right, go ahead and roll a putt. And then it takes you to the second hole. So you can actually play a round of golf only putting, which I think is really cool when it comes to practice, especially indoors. Now that we're getting into an indoor season. And looks like COVID is hitting for a second time here. So you're probably going to have a lot of people stuck indoors for the next couple of months. You know, that's what I'm thinking. Um, unfortunately, um, I think that's what's going to happen. Um, and, I, you know, being able to get some of this, this fun tools out of it, like a, literally a golf putting simulator where you don't need a screen, you don't need a projector, you just need a mat on your floor um, or carpet. Like it's, it's a fun thing to keep you engaged, but also makes a game out of it. You know, I think that, you know, this as a golf teacher, we can re- when we give a student something really good to work on, something that, they, that clicks with them, they're engaged, they're thoughtful, they're thinking they can go through it. But if you can give them that and then give them like a skills challenge or a combine to do, it amplifies their learning. So you've got the what they're trying to do, but now you're putting it into a scorecard kind of a pressure situation. And if they're able to accomplish it there, wow, you're, you're, you've really accomplished the coaching the role well. So I think that when, when the golfer can work on a little bit of their posture and their technique and some of the things that they're doing mechanically and then actually get into a, a gameplay with it, like it just, like I said, it amplifies the, the training process. Funny, I was just getting into that conversation actually this morning on Twitter with someone about the, the idea of like working on ways to get better um, and talking about like the difficulty, like the difficulty uh, in which a player should work on a drill, like how hard should a drill be basically was the question that had come up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I'm sure you find a lot with that. Like, okay, so you're saying students are, you know, a lot of students find it difficult to stay engaged with, the, with an exercise that they're working on. Mm-hmm. And 
in my opinion, some of that does have to do with the difficulty of it. You know, if a drill is too easy, people find like it's not really that challenging. They don't really put much effort into it. You're mm-hmm. not really seeing it being very effective. If a drill is too hard, the player gives up because they're like, well, there's no way I'm ever going to fucking do this, right? Like, I just right. won't be able to, to achieve it. So, like, when you're, when you're working with a player, whether that's putting or full swing, how are you keeping them engaged? Do you find that every now and again you have to change the drill you're working on because the difficulty level doesn't match? Absolutely. Um, so when I'm working with a player on the green, uh, I have multiple stations going on that tackle multiple things that we want to work on. So if I find that they're kind of getting a little bit lackadaisical in one spot, we jump over to another station. And the, the time we spend at each station might, is definitely going to be different because they're going, to, they're, they're going to react to that environment a little bit differently. So I'm always trying to change things up with them. But I totally agree with you that if it's, if it's too easy and it's working, then the golfer says, well, you know, there's got to be more to it. But if it's too hard, then they're, they're not, they're not going to be engaged. But there's another point to it that if they don't really understand why they're doing it, you know, if the information that we've given them hasn't gone through the filter of what they already know, then, then it's, it's an analysis for them. It's, okay, so he's asking me to, to flex my wrist, but why am I doing that? Why would I have to do that? And so they're hitting shots questioning it because it hasn't gone through the filter. So when it comes to using Capto, I really try to emphasize on, hey, this is what we're trying to accomplish. And rather than me being the one saying you did it right or you did it wrong, let's isolate this feature in Capto and it's going to be the one that tells you whether it's good or not. Well, that's, that's pretty good. So it's basically, it's, it's achieving a goal for you so that there's never going to be any sort of like doubt in the, in the coach's mind or the player's mind kind of thing of they're working on the right things right now. Yeah, because it doesn't come down to my opinion on whether it was right or wrong. You know, I mentioned, hey, we need to start the ball online. You have a tendency to have the face open at impact up to three degrees. Let's work on your start line. Oh, look, you got it to 0.1 degrees. That's terrific. I didn't have to tell you that was terrific. Capto lit up green and it showed you. And we all know numbers. We know that zero is going to be really good. And any big number on a putter face is going to be awful. So it's, I don't have to explain it. And that makes our job easy. You know, it makes our job so easy when we can just point to the data and say, well, it's right there. Yeah, I think Trackman had done a similar concept where they came out with a program, was the name Tracy or something? Yeah, I remember that. I think it's Tracy where basically it it gives you like a sort of guideline of, you know, these numbers are kind of being skewed off in a way that's penalizing you. If you can get them closer to this ballpark, you'll you'll be in a better mindset or a a better, like a more efficient method. So I think I think it, it has similarities to the to the full swing, but I think that's really good. I mean, I've I've seen coaches use it to great success. Yeah. Uh, do you think that? Uh, actually, here's a question for you: How much better has Capto made you as a putting coach? It, massively. I mean, it's 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 got me thinking about so many deeper levels of putting. You know. Um, for example, when it comes to mechanics, you know, I spent some time with uh, David Orr down in North Carolina and, you know, we talked about grip and stuff, how the hands go on the club. But I mean, the grip itself has to do with like shoulder rotation and how your arm is right. oriented. It's way more than just your hands. So what the, like the biggest eye opener for me using Capto was the ease of seeing the acceleration profile and understanding the speed versus acceleration of a putter in the putting stroke. And when I started to see that when the acceleration profile gets really, really good and it starts to flow, the path gets good, the face gets good, the, the lying, the loft, all the stuff starts to shine where there are times where when the acceleration's off, all of a sudden we start seeing numbers that just don't, don't, 
really make sense. So between an acceleration profile or matching up a stroke to a, a tempo or a beat, or just taking a look at how the player is, is manipulating the putter, how they, uh, Capto calls it the putt plane, which is basically the plane of rotation of the putter. Uh, simply put, how does the golfer move the putter? Do they move it with their shoulders? Do they move it with their wrists? This Capto shows us. So when, I'm, when I can get deeper into how the body is moving and the rate at which the body is moving and how that therefore affects the club in their hand, my goodness. I mean, it's, it's almost to the point where I don't, if a player is pushing their putts all the time, I don't even have to talk about the fact that the face is open or the path is to the right, we can start changing some things a little bit deeper, you know, maybe posture, maybe, you know, rhythm and tempo, and all of a sudden things change. So as a, as a coach and as an instructor, I've, my, I feel as though that my information to the player has gotten easier and simpler and better to manage. Um, and it's not, it's not superficial. And what I mean by superficial is that, you know, if we all know that face angle so important accounts for 90% of where the ball's going to roll down the line or not. But if that's the exact thing you're focusing on, it's a crapshoot. Right. You're, so not, you're, you're not understanding all the other details that are affecting and influencing the face, basically. Absolutely. And that's where Capto, getting into the forces and torques of the putter, you know, we call it the trembling and the handling, how much it's twisting versus how much it's pushing and pulling and lifting up and down. Like, I can see what the golfer's doing to the grip, and as a result of what they're doing to the grip, it's affecting the head. So I'm actually looking at the other end of the putter more often now. Nice. Do yeah. you want to uh, talk about, or actually, for people who maybe don't know enough about putting, do you want to talk to us a bit about acceleration profiles? Just give Definitely. us a few examples of like extremes that you see that are really bad and maybe some potential damages that come from it. For sure. So ever heard of accelerating through a putt? Yeah, you know, of course. like could, could be the worst piece of advice we've ever had. And getting <laughs> yeah. golfers that come to me that say, well, I'm supposed to accelerate through the putt. And I say, well, actually, no, you're not. We want the speed to be constant. And if the speed is constant, what's the acceleration? And they yeah, go, well, it zero. Should, it should be minimal. Yeah, of course. Bingo. So, you know, when we start to look at things, like let's talk about the, the end of the backstroke for a sec, where the putter changes direction. Mm -hmm. Okay. The speed of the putter is zero. Right? Right. Changes direction. The speed goes to zero for the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. But that point is where the acceleration is the highest. So, right, because the change in direction is causing the acceleration to speed up. Right. It's a lag. There's, there's, there's acceleration within a lag. So, mm -hmm. you know, well, understanding those pieces that when acceleration is highest, speed is zero. And when, when speed is highest, acceleration is zero. Uh, that, 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 boils, that boils right back down to forces and torques. Right. Bingo. Absolutely. Um, so this was an analogy that I got that I really understood when it comes to the acceleration profile of a putting stroke. I think everybody's been on, been on a swing on a swing set. Well, mm -hmm. when you're on a swing on a swing set, you pump the energy into you in the swing at a totally different time than you feel the glide. Yep. Right? So we have to pump the energy in at a place that people might not be thinking about pumping the energy into the transition point but you know if you've got a golfer that takes the club back and they basically stop for a second at the end of the backstroke and then you, gas pedal you, you it all the kill, way through you kill all the momentum there right like your swing's not moving <laughs> mm -hmm. so we like that's the kind of thing where i look at with the acceleration and, and acceleration can have multiple speeds right we've seen we've seen brant snedeker's got great acceleration but his club like it's a short poppy stroke 
And then right. you look at a guy like Lauren Roberts, who's got a long flowing stroke. Their acceleration profile is going to be very similar, even though the speeds are crazy different. Right. Um, so it's it's well, I I can equate that to the full swing for the listeners. I mean, you see that with uh, the same thing with long hitters. I mean, if mm-hmm. you ever look at a guy like Kyle Berkshire, he's not he's not transferring his pressure at the same point in which people would think it's happening in transition. It's happening at a very different point in the in the backswing. Yeah. Right. 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 Pumping so, energy into the system at a different time. Than so he's pumping the energy slightly, slightly before the transition takes place where that lag is being created, which is creating that speed, basically. Right. Bingo. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so when, so when I think about the acceleration profile with a golfer, um, you know, we can really match that up to a beat. And so I like to use a metronome. There is a metronome that's built into Capto as well. And when you set it to, let's call it 65 or 70 beats a minute, and you've got, you know, a standard tick, tick, tick. Well, getting the golfer to start on one tick and have them finish their stroke on the next tick, all of a sudden they've got a start point and an end point. And when they can start to match up to a certain rhythm, whatever the rhythm is, whether it's 60 beats a minute or 90 beats a minute, it's still acceleration. That's still rhythm, right? A song has rhythm, whether it's country or techno. The difference there is the speed, is the beats per minute. Right. So I, like, when, you, when we can understand that acceleration profiles can have totally different looks and totally different speeds, we can really get into understanding how that affects everything. Um, but when the simplest way that I put it to the golfer in front of me is I say that this is, I show them the profile, I show them how they're doing it. We talk about some concepts. Most of them are trying to speed the putter up through the ball, right? We're trying to lag the shaft through impact, which we know doesn't exactly happen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're, I'm trying to get them to understand the concept of acceleration, but getting them into it takes five seconds. Right. Getting, th- getting through their filter of not accelerating the putter through the ball takes more time than fixing their acceleration because they believe everything they hear on the golf channel. I mean, there's a lot of misconstrued information, not only in the full swing, very clearly in putting as well. I mean, you totally. Kind of just, you kind of just said, it. do you notice a trend? Actually, I, I was going to ask, have you noticed a trend in your lessons, whether putting or full swing, where people are starting to struggle with stuff maybe a little differently than before because of the amount of information that's out there? Or- you find it's still a lot of the same shit that you're dealing with every week. Mm. No, I think that the the challenge is when I'm working with a new player and they, you know, they subscribe to everybody on YouTube and they start naming off, you know, most of my friends, hey, I, I listen to this yeah, guy or, you know, I'm on Kogorno. You know, all of these guys come to me and say, well, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. And it's, and I, I have to kind of explain to them that YouTube is a lot of theory. It's a lot of like, let's discuss golf swings in general, where a golf lesson picks apart the person in front of you. So yes, I love the backswing concepts of 90% of the guys on YouTube, but if the golfer in front of me is doing something different, they're going to have to do something different from those YouTube videos to match it up. So mm-hmm. it's, I, I find that you know, um, with putting, there's a lot of golfers that, that look at their stuff. They listen to stuff on TV, you know, that they'll go and buy the arm lock putter because they see Bryson using it, but they don't quite get all the pieces that they need for it. So I wouldn't say that, that I'm finding new problems. Um, I'm able to go deeper down the rabbit hole to get them better putters. So, you know, once the acceleration profile gets good and they start getting their ball online and they turn to me and say, but Nick, I'm not making any putts. And it's like, well, that putt broke five inches and you saw one inch. Like, maybe we should aim point this a little bit. 
So right. it allows me to go to a green reading process. But why am I going to teach someone how to read a green from 20 feet if they have no chance of hitting that line? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, your, your ability to start the ball in a certain spot is where the advantage comes in in being able to read a green, right? I mean, without yeah. one, you can't really take advantage of the other. Absolutely. So, you know, the Capto kind of stuff lets me get a golfer to get the ball rolling down their line at an appropriate speed. And once I'm able to go past all of that and we don't have to really dig down that rabbit hole anymore, then we talk about how we're seeing the ground break. Um, and that's when we get into the green reading stuff. So, what, so again, what Capto's allowed me to do is teach more green reading because people are, be, are moving the putter better. Right. So because of the ability to get their strokes much more efficient through the system, you're able to take advantage of other areas of putting. Bingo. You know, you start hitting your driver better. Well, now let's go do some course management. But if you're mm -hmm. bunting your driver off the tee out of bounds, why are we talking about how to play the hole? Why are we yeah, talking you, about targets? It, it all of a sudden becomes kind of unnecessary if you can't, and if you can't even get close to that target, right? For sure. Um, I've got a, a junior player that I've worked with this more than anybody else. And um, when I get to work with, with Dylan on his stroke and what he's up to, when we go onto the golf course to now start to see how we're looking at things, he has already been aware, not only from his own perspective, but from what Capto tells us, that he is a way better putter from right to left than left to right. Like, way better. I'm talking like 80-20 better. So, when, like, even this summer, when we're going down the fairway talking about things, he's saying, okay, well, what side of the pin should I hit this on so I have my right to left putt? I'm like, holy geez, 16 years old and we're talking about this? Like, way to go. But we can talk about it and actually do it because we've got the foundation to do it. Right. If you, so, didn't, have that, if you didn't have that foundation, obviously your focus would be like, all right, buddy, let's take a backseat and start thinking about other places. Totally. It's PhD stuff for an elementary school kid. Just that's not going to work. Yeah, I like, I like that. Have you... Uh, what other examples of really bad information is out there outside of the acceleration that you see with putting uh, from players that come to you? Don't or, use your wrists or lock your arms, take right. your hands out of it. I mean, come on. I mean, like, I love the fact that hack motion is now out there and there's some things out there that's showing the manipulation to the wrists. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to actively use my wrists, but I sure don't want to actively lock them out. Yeah, so it's like they're going to move, let them move through the changes you're going to make in your putting stroke, but don't yeah. force them to not move. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, so I think, you know, around the campfire, like we're all talking about the same thing, but it comes down to intention. Yes, I don't want you to flip your wrists 100%, but I also don't want you to lock them out to turn into a robot because that's going to make it worse. The, the harder, so the, the, the harder I found that people lock out their wrists, the harder time, the harder it is for them to start their ball online. But if you, get a, if you get a golfer to basically stand there and almost go like on purpose, wristy, back and forth, back and forth, oh my gosh, the start line is unbelievable. Now, right. So, learned, so, where, so where do you equate the struggle of the start lines on the golfer? What, what would be the couple of points in their... What, or I guess the question is like, what would be the root causes of them not being able to start the ball online when you take the wrist out of it? Uh, well, I'm going to say that most of the time for good golfers is they don't even, they're not paying attention to their line, right? right? They know their break, you know, they know what they're trying to do with their stroke and they just go ahead and hit the ball. But I would say that, you know, picking that intermediate spot, a foot, foot and a half in front of the ball and trying to aim your ball over a spot. I mean, that's the, that's the biggest skill or the biggest key to getting the face angle straight or better. And however we have to do that, we do that. And 
I mean, I, like I mentioned before with the wristy stroke, I have had players, one guy won a club championship here at a country club in, uh, in Toronto this year, where he was actively allowing the wrist to do whatever they wanted to do. And he felt as though by keeping them soft and letting them do their thing, not only did he start the ball online, his lag putting got unbelievably better. So if you've got two golfers from, say, 30 feet, and you've got one who's got, you know, really locked arms, and they're trying to rock their shoulders the best they can, they're going to have worse distance control than the guy who's going to sit there and pull like the Arnold Palmer 1960 stroke. So it comes down to the length of the radius. The shorter the radius of the stroke, meaning if it's a 34-inch putter and you're just using your wrists, the shorter the radius, the better the distance control can get. So it's kind of a, it's a weird thing to talk about that if you want to get the ball to roll consistent distances at a long range, you can't lock your arms out. You can't squeeze things up. It can't be a broomstroke thing. So I think you see this with guys like, I mean, Bryson's got a pretty good uh, handle on how he controls his pace, but I noticed it with Matt Kuchar early on when he was with that arm lock stroke, he had a hard time with distance. You know, the 30-foot putt was a hard time to get it close. Um, the guys that use the broom handle, the, the not anchoring but anchoring, you know, like uh, Langer and maybe Adam Scott. Um, right. That's really, that's a wonderful tool for the short putts. But boy, is it hard to get it right for the long putts. Interesting. So the length of the radius has a lot to do with our ability to manage the speed that we put out to the putter head and the ball. So if a player comes and sees you and they're struggling with their putting, are you typically focusing on one area in particular before looking at anything else? Or do you find you're just still looking at the blend of all of it together? Yeah, it's a big blend. Um, I'll put them through a five or six hole little challenge, get them to roll some putts from different distances at different breaks. I'll ask them what they see as their read. Um, I'll ask them what they're trying to do. You know, it's a lot of filter stuff. Hey, like, what's your concept here? What are you actually trying to do? What do you think is correct? Um, and when I start to recognize, you know, what which one of the three or four aspects is the worst that's the one i'll talk about and we'll we'll work on that so you know if a golfer says hey i got an 18 foot putt it's going to break left to right and it's about five inches and i stand up there and i aim pointed it's five inches and i agree with them and they can't hit that line we don't talk about reading we talk about trying to hit the line we talk about trying to identify the line really um and then from there if it's not so much about the green reading maybe it's short putts maybe it's long putts we kind of go into the intention of what they're trying to do where they're trying to roll the ball so there's not like not even every lesson involves capto we don't we don't need to, you know a device for every every golf lesson um but it's nice to have there it's it, it doesn't affect the putter it doesn't affect the swing weight it, it doesn't have a big box in front of it so it doesn't feel like you're standing in a you know in a medical lab um mm-hmm. but it we still can we still can get through a putting lesson without having to go through that stuff by just knowing that you know what's your read where's your line and how fast did you roll the ball down that line because those are your keys um whatever we have to do to fix the weakest one is what we're going to do and then when they're all really really good well we get into a bit of a different level it's routine it's practice plans it's 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 you know, attitude, it, it's, it's the personal side of things. But before I can get to the personal side of things with putting, we got to get down to the, the nitty gritty. What do you see as a read? Is it right or wrong? Can you hit your line? Yes or no? You know, and do you have the ability within your stroke, acceleration profile, speed profile, mechanically to actually get the ball to roll the distances you want? Um, a great game that, that someone gave me once was a leapfrog game saying, okay, roll this putt six feet and now roll the next putt six and a half feet then the next putt's seven feet, and you kind of keep going. 
And when you mark those balls after you've rolled 10 or 12 balls, you're going to find one big, massive window. Let's just say that they try to roll the ball seven feet and it goes seven feet. Then they try to roll it seven and a half feet and it goes eight and a half feet, right? We just found somewhere at about seven feet, you kind of go away from your mechanics, add something in, and you lost your touch between seven and eight and a half feet. So that type of thing helps me with speed control, obviously getting the ball close to the hole so we can actually make a putt. But that's also where Capto comes in. Interesting, interesting. You spoke about um, kind of briefly, you know, intent and the personal side. I want to dive into that a little bit too because guys like uh, Brad Faxon and some other coaches talk all the time about this idea of not just intent, but like, you know, picturing the putt going to the hole and the mental psyche of thinking about being more positive on the greens and whatever. How much emphasis would you put on that if, let's say, you see that the player stroke is being pretty good and, and stuff? How much effect or influence have you seen from a player where you know, maybe they're not holding as many butts as they could because of something that's an external factor outside of the stroke itself that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to link it to two things, and it's going to be two categories. It's going to be intention and attention. So what is the intention of the golfer to roll this ball through their plan? But what are they paying attention to to make this happen? So you know, some guys with aim point talk about drops, drops points, you know, where the ball starts to break. Some guys talk about, you know, where the ball crosses the lip of the cup. Those things are the paying attention to. But my intentions could be to the pace of my stroke. It could be to a calm factor. It could be, you know, a quiet eye type of thing. All of those intentional things are things that we have to kind of discuss. That's like, um, intentions are it's really a learning thing. We've got to talk about it. You've got to learn it. You've got to understand it. But getting people to pay attention to certain things gets a little bit easier. Um, You know, putting a coin halfway down down a line and saying, okay, let's roll the ball and let's pay attention to where your ball rolls in relation to that line. Your intention is to hit the line, but pay attention to where it goes. And I think that with the better player understanding kind of the flow between intention and attention and when when both of those kick in, that's what I have found helps my better players um, in the long run. Like my tournament players are able to use these types of things, you know, and they can go multiple tournaments without having to get a recalibration on their stroke or have to think about anything because everything that they're doing has to do with their mind. Wow, that's, I like that a lot, um, especially as somebody who is not the best putter on the greens. I would say that my stroke is pretty good. My um, start line issues are probably from a lack of attention on things like alignment and and really where i'm trying to actually aim the putt in general Mm -hmm. um and i find that oftentimes i get kind of you know lazy on the greens where i'm not super structured how much emphasis are you putting then on the player like if their attention is bad and their intention is bad where do you where do you begin from there if a player comes and sees you let's say i were to come and see you for my putting show Would yeah. you, where would be your starting point in getting a player to start being a little more, I guess, structured and, and focused on the green? It's just right off the bat, put a ball down, point at a hole and say, what are you trying to do? Like, let's go through a plan here of what you're trying to do. I don't want you to hit the putt. I want you to write down a plan of what has to happen in order for this ball to go in the hole. Basic, like full on basic. So that's back to the three things. Read the green, find the line along that read and hit the ball along that line with the right speed, okay? So when we start to get down to what has to happen away from what might have to happen, 
we can start to get the attention better. So, um, you know, if a golfer comes to me and they start talking about all the different putters they have and all the different philosophies out there and, uh, you know, tinkering with their, how they're holding it, tinkering with their grip, that tells me that they're trying to do something inside the bubble. Like, you know, if a golf golfers in their stance and they got their putter behind the ball and you put a bubble around them, that's inside the bubble. But I'm trying to get golfers to think about what the ball does once it leaves the bubble. So it's like, what's going to happen out there? How do we get it external, not internal? I don't want you thinking about yourself. I don't want you thinking about where your index fingers are touching. I want you to think about where this ball has to roll and how do you react to that? Because most of the time when I, can, when I just drop some coins on the green and randomly say, okay, turn over there and try and roll out of that coin, start line gets really good mm-hmm. because they're trying to get the ball to go somewhere instead of trying to get the putter to go somewhere. So less thoughts about the stroke, more thoughts about the vision of what the ball needs to do. Yeah, and it's, it's similar to my tournament players when we talk about things on the driving range, you know? It's, let's stand behind the ball, let's go through a little routine, let's visualize this driver starting at that tree, curving left down to the fairway, it's going to hit the ground hard, roll out, and you're probably going to hit it 300, okay? Think about it, daydream, close your eyes if you have to, you know, figure something out, but keep that movie playing in your head while you're going through your shot. And if you can stay with that vivid imagery and you can stay in that engagement, holy geez. I mean, like, that's how you start to play without thinking about how to play. Sounds like something that I need to be doing with my own putting stroke then. <laughs> yeah, well, we can work on it. We got winter to do it. True. Um, okay, so let's talk about some fun stuff. What's the, obviously it's irrelevant who the person was, but I want to hear some like funny horror stories of putting, like. What's the worst thing you've seen of a guy come to you and it was just like the most horrendous stroke and you must have had like a, a second take kind of like looking back going, oh my goodness. Well, I think I'm having deja vu because I think I remember saying this before, but I was in the middle of a putting lesson about 15 minutes into an hour and a half putting lesson and the guy said, hold on a sec, I'll be right back and went into the pro shop and bought a new putter. No way. I, got, yeah, he didn't. You, I don't remember you ever telling me this. A guy bought a putter in the middle of your putting lesson with him. Yep. Yeah, we were working on stuff. We were talking about some things. Had nothing to do with the putter, nothing to do with his grip, nothing to do with his aim. And he just said, hold on a sec, I'll be right back. Okay, dropped the putter on the ground, ran inside, came back out with the new Scotty Cameron. As he's walking to the green, he's taking stickers off and I'm going, is this guy serious? <laughs> so he did. Oh, so man, did. that's good. You know, and it, obviously it didn't do anything for him. But there's that, there's those golfers out there that feel as though that if they put something different in their hand, the ball's going to do something different. And, you know, with the driver, I could imagine it. You know, if you change some lie angles, I can see the ball doing something different. But, I mean, with putting, he basically bought the exact same putter with the same sight lines at pretty much the same length. It's just one was this brand and the other one was that brand. So that was kind of crazy because I had to really look at him and say, you really think that it's the putter that's affecting all this, don't you? Like, we have to think about you for a minute. So, you know, we went through it. We rolled some putts. He liked his putter. And I said, great. We spent the last 30 minutes talking about putting without, without a putter in his hand, without rolling the ball. We went to a hole. We put a tee down and said, okay, like, what's the break here? Oh, this is the break. Okay, where would your aim point be for this break? Where would the ball cross the line? If the hole had saran wrap on the top, where would the ball actually stop rolling, right? And we went through those types of visual things because... I knew that there was nothing that I could do really that got away from him thinking about, it's got to be my putter. It's all the putter's fault. So I had to get the putter out of the situation and get him thinking a little bit more about how the round ball rolls on this tilted green surface. Um, 
And so we took it to that level. Um, I mean, I've had other putter guys come in with putting. I mean, I had a guy come in with a 25 degree upright lie angle. 25 degrees. 25 degrees. I could almost stick my entire big toe under the toe of his putter. Oh my God. Now, this is the best part about it. He could not miss his start line. Really? Yep. He would plumb Bob all of his reads and either completely miss the read in the wrong direction or underread it. He was a chronic underreader. I let him asau awoki that putter head as much as he wanted. I could care less because he hit the line so well. And as soon as like the, the, the end of his thing, when he walked away, he's like, okay, so you're telling me I need to play more break. And I'm like, yeah, in a nutshell, but I kind of explained to you how to read break. So if you're going to do your process and add five inches, all right, I mean, you're on the right track. But if you went through the real process, you'd realize that you were a chronic underreader. Now you're a normal reader. But I know that he went home and said, oh, yeah, the guy told me they need to play more break. Right. Like he was thinking in a very basic mentality, but at the same time, it's, it's oh. the concept of why he was wrong that's more important. Absolutely. But, you know, like unbelievable. I mean, he even said it at the end. He's like, you know, I thought you were going to tell me to stand, to stand differently and put my putter differently. And I'm like, well, what's the putter for? Like, you've got a flat surface that's supposed to roll the ball down a line you want. If you do that well, why would I break it? Like, that doesn't make sense. You know, I, you I, don't. I, I literally just experienced that in the full swing. I had a, I had a really good player come to see me the other day, and he's literally pull drawing every single shot he's hitting. And he's looking at me going, how come I'm pull drawing everything? You know, what do I need to change in my golf swing? I looked at his golf swing, I'm like, your golf swing's fine. Your ball position sucks. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it's just something super basic that, yeah, I'm sorry. Maybe you feel really shitty leaving a lesson that you spent a whole bunch of money and you feel like I only told you about your ball position. But the reality is why would I touch your swing if I think your swing is good? Like why would I touch your putting stroke if the putting stroke is good, but you have no idea what you're doing beyond that, you know? Absolutely. It's the, it's the Jim Furyk scenario. Literally. Don't mess with what's not broken. But I, there, are a, there are golfers, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if you get the golfer that's very much into mechanics and wants to know a whole lot of information. And a good golfer could come to see you and you could be like, hey, I think you need to kind of just give it a little bit of, you know, flexion in, at the top of your swing. And I think you'd be okay. But that golfer might come to you thinking you're going to be like, well, you need to change your grand reaction forces through the sagittal plane so you can maximize your gamma torque. Like that might be what someone wants to hear, but they don't need to hear it. I'll, you know, I'll, tell you, like, I'll tell you what, Nick, ever since I started posting more on social media, and I'm sure you get this too, I have players coming in with like mindsets, not even just mindsets, like they have predetermined ideas in their head of what I'm going to tell them. Mm-hmm. And they think the lesson is going to be like an hour of me talking about these crazy scientific terms. And then they come mm-hmm. to me and I'm like, yeah, just need to open up your right hip more. And they're like, that's all you're going to tell me? I'm like, yeah, because I don't need to give you the whole spiel of all these little details. Like if I think it's just a simple thing, sometimes it's just a simple thing, you know? And I, and I, I would imagine that you're dealing with that too, especially in putting. Yeah. I mean, the best line I heard, and I, I wish I knew where I heard it from, but the pilot doesn't need to know how to fix the plane. Just fly it and land it. Literally. So I don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But then, you know, you get to, you, you deal with so many different people. You deal with someone who doesn't want to know that stuff and you deal with someone who does want to know. You know, like a lesson for Darren Clark is going to be mind-blowingly different than a lesson for Bryson DeChambeau. Like night and day. Mm-hmm. So this is where we have to start to kind of, you know, understand the person in front of us and give them what they need to do. Um, but you're right. If a golfer comes like, wow, I thought you were going to tell me all this stuff. I mean, I can if you want me to. You don't really need to do anything with it. Right. 
So yeah, it's, it's the, it's the art, it's the art in your communication, right? Oh, I mean, a hundred percent. At the end of the day, I think that, you know, the, the, and look, this is the, I think the problem with online information too, you kind of touched upon this at the start of this follow podcast of, you know, the idea of YouTube, like YouTube is good because YouTube is a source of information and it could be really helpful. The problem with a thing like YouTube is no different than the way in which we'll communicate with a lesson in the sense of it's going to be too general. You know, people are going to search for an answer on YouTube. They're going to search for, okay, I'm missing my putts to the right. It's like, okay, but there's 48 different reasons or 480 reasons why you might miss your putt to the right. I can't film all 480 of them in one video that is going to be 10 minutes long. I'm sorry. That's not going to happen. And so, you know, whenever I post on social media, people, you know, the number one comment I get on my, on my direct messages in regards to my posts, like, why are your captions always so long? Like my captions are long because I'm trying to make it very specific so that people don't go down the rabbit hole of my information and say, well, why the hell didn't I get better trying this? Well, it's because Mm -hmm. I'm saying it's very specific for a player who has a specific pattern with a specific problem. And I find that the problem with YouTube is they're trying to gain this traction and I get it. But at the same time, you know, a million people are going to watch their video, maybe 80,000 or 100,000 of them might get better. The other 900,000 are going to have a problem somewhere else and be like, well, that didn't work. Totally. And I appreciate your long captions. I mean, Mike Bender does the same thing. They're big novels down there. But you know what? It, it goes into a little bit more of why you put that video up there. So mm-hmm. it brings context to the situation. Um, I, I like to post some things where I don't do anything. You know, I got a golfer doing a drill and they've got something on them and they don't look all normal and they're doing something weird with their finish. And it's like, hey, here's Frank hitting balls. <laughs> I've you seen know? that from you, by the way, numerous times. Yeah, actually, like, often, oftentimes it'll also be you hitting balls, and I always look at it and I go, "Damn, I need to swing like me." <laughs> oh, I love hitting balls. I hit balls every single day. Oh, I don't, oh, dude, I, I've seen it. I know. I, I'm well aware. I mean, how many how many less rounds have you played this year than usual because of the COVID? A hundred. Yeah, I mean that's a lot. Yeah, I, like, first of all, first of all, the fact that you played a hundred less is already a shock to me. Let alone the fact that I can only imagine how many you used to play. Yeah, so last year was over 170. This year, I don't even know if it got, it might have got to 70. I had 45 playing lessons, um, and I'm sure I played about 25 rounds at a bunch of different clubs outside of that. Um, So I'm looking at about 70. But I mean, last year, I could play 36 holes in two and a half hours. Because, yeah, but you have to realize that you're like outside of the norm. Like you're a total outlier when it comes to playing golf. Yeah, I know. Let, let Let alone as a coach, by the way, who's as busy as you are. I know, but like I got into golf because I played golf and I love golf. I mean, when I finished university in 2000, um, I won our final tournament down at school and I came home and I didn't play golf for a year and a half. Um, And then I went back to the Canadian tour and I played some golf there. Like I was always a golfer and I always used to say, I'm not going to teach golf. Golf's not really my thing to do. But when I started to love teaching golf and seeing the smiles on people's faces, I mean, that took my, my career took off. So I absolutely love it. But I would say maybe, maybe four years ago, three years ago now, I got into a little bit of a funk where, you know, I remember one week I did 91 hour lessons and I came home and I'm like, what the heck am I doing? You know, I talked to my guys around here and they'd be like, Nick, why do you work so hard? How are you working so many hours? Like, this is getting ridiculous. And then I'd go play golf with members, whether they asked me to play or it'd be like, you know, someone coming and saying, oh, by the way, you're playing with the ladies tomorrow morning. And I would go and shoot like 85 because not only did I not want to play golf, but I hadn't played golf and I hadn't, I hadn't like honed my own craft. And I literally 
I remember the, the 2017, the end of the season in October, I'm like, this is terrible. Next year, I'm playing all the time. Like, I have to get my game back because so the, the, the experience you're going, you went through is the experience that I find myself going through in the last few years. Mm-hmm. It's because I'm playing such little amounts of golf because I work so often. I find I'm losing the motivation to want to practice at the end of my long days. Mm-hmm. And then you go out there with these expectations of how you used to be when you were playing all the time before you yep. became a full time coach. And obviously, that is never going to come to fruition because you're not giving it the appropriate time for that to happen. And then you just get pissed off and like lose motivation to, to keep playing. Absolutely. Um, and I got to a point where, you know, I didn't even want to demo something for somebody. I'm like, wow, I, I haven't hit a ball in four days. Like, I don't even know if I should take this six iron and show you how to do this. So, <laughs> like, it literally, it, it really got to me. And I mean, in 2000, 2008, I started playing golf left handed. And my goal was to break 90 left-handed. Um, and, Did you ever do it? Uh, not yet. Um, the last time I played, I got into a bunker. It took me half a dozen to get out. Um, I, I so, would assume beyond that, you were pretty close. I can hit the ball pretty well. Like, it's, it's decent. Um, I don't lose as many balls left-handed as I do right-handed. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, because um, they're not going as far. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, they're not going as far. not going as far offline. But, um, so... When I started to actually see my left-handed swing, like with the ball and shank the ball and not even be able to hit it anymore, I thought, okay, like me as the golf, as the, as the pro golfer has disappeared and I've turned into the golf pro and, you know, it's like, funny because they're so, they're so, they're so different too. I, I don't know what a golf pro is, man. I don't know what a golf pro is. I don't know, like. I mean, or like a golf professional. There's not a bowling professional. There's not a tennis no, professional. No, I, I would there's say that there is no such thing as a golf pro. I would say there is a pro golfer and there is a golf coach. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, someone that works at a club. It's, it's, yeah, it's something I've, never, I've never been a fan of the idea of golf pro. Like, what, yeah. what are you? Are you teaching the game or are you playing the game professionally? Because I find those are two very different things. Right. So when I left my amateur status, the first thing that, that affected my amateur status was playing as a pro. It wasn't signing up for the PGA. It was playing as a pro. So right. I'm a pro golfer. And when I started to lose those things, I needed to make sure that I picked it back up again. Um, this past year, I had full intentions of playing all kinds of tournaments, but there were none to play. Um, you know, I put together a whole bunch of different little competitions for myself, little money games between me and some of the pros I teach or some of the, the pros in the city just to keep things kind of, you know, competitive. Um, but I'm really looking forward to next year if there's going to be some type of competitive tour going on, whether it's Canadian tour or something, I'm going to play. Um, and if it's going to, if, if I have to sacrifice how much I teach for that, no problem. Um, but you know, it's just going to flow from this past year. Uh, I, I taught four days a week this past summer and absolutely rocked it, killed it, loved it and enjoyed my three days of getting on the golf course and or being at home. <laughs> how much did your uh, schedule change with the whole lockdown? Because you guys, you guys are actually getting the lockdowns kind of uh, lifted, right? In the next couple of weeks, I saw. It sounds like some of the gyms are going to open back up and restaurants a little bit. But um, I was really lucky. So on the, about the 20, 22nd of May, TPC Toronto called me and said, you know what? Go ahead. You can start teaching here tomorrow. I said, that's great. Like, phenomenal. What are my restrictions? And they're like, we don't think you really need any. Um, you know, four people can go play golf. Why can't you teach four people on the range? Go ahead and do your golf schools. So I did. Um, and I was so fortunate because so many clubs in Toronto were not only not letting you use the range, but you couldn't teach there. So for the first month, I got so many students from, that had other coaches that weren't able to see them because they had nowhere to do it. Right. So 
my summer was like phenomenal. Um, I put over 300 people through uh, golf schools. I take four people at a time for four hours. Um, I put 300 people through this year, uh, almost 80 schools. Um, and it was phenomenal. Like the, the feedback was great. Uh, the improvement obviously was a little bit better with a four hour session rather than, you know, a one hour session. Um, mm-hmm. and the fact that I could bring all those people together in a socially distance environment, it was phenomenal. It was awesome. So I really feel like I, I was lucky this year. I was fortunate. Um, and I took advantage of it. How many fewer one hour lessons are you giving now compared to like five years ago? Or ten years ago, this summer I gave five. Yeah, I gave five. I, well, first of all, all I saw from you on social media was golf schools pretty much every yeah, day. I, I rejected private lessons. I, there weren't like people didn't get private lessons. If you emailed me and you wanted lessons, you came to a golf school. And if they, if someone was like, "No, I just want to have a one hour lesson with you," sorry, can't offer it. It's like there's a lot of other coaches in Toronto. If you want, that's just not my jam anymore. It's not. I like if if you're going to pay two hundred dollars for a one hour lesson or three hundred dollars for a four hour lesson. I don't understand you where you're coming from right now. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think you really understand what it's going to take to get better. Like, I'm giving you a massive opportunity to get four hours of my time at 75 bucks an hour. And this is what you need. But if, if someone's like, no, I, I need to work on me and just me, and they didn't really, maybe they didn't ask the right questions or didn't really understand what it was all about, I just didn't do it. So any of the individual stuff that I did this year was, was with a pro. Right. There wasn't an amateur golfer that got a single hour lesson this year. Um, sorry, gotta, I got to rephrase that. Outside of putting. Well, I will say, I mean, at the end of the day, the pros need to be exclusive. So I, I get that side yep. of it too. Yep, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I had, a, like, I had a school with four pros in it. So that was wonderful. I mean, those guys got to look around and see how other guys did it. And that was, that was so much fun. Um, but, you know, when guys are getting ready to go play some Canadian tour stuff, you got to get it individual because they're going to talk about some things that maybe they don't want other people hearing. Um, so you, uh, those you are my heard, single lessons. Have you heard any news about what the speculations are for next year, schedule-wise? I haven't. Um, I'm I'm sure that I'll uh, I'm going to reach out to uh, Scott Pritchard, who runs the McKenzie Tour up here, and find out what the plan is for next year. Um, I mean, he closed down the tour this year, and then within a month managed to get that four series event: two out at Bear Mountain in Victoria, and two at my course at TPC Toronto. Um, and those were phenomenal. Yeah. Kind of the life series you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like he, he really pulled a rabbit out of his hat, did some awesome work, and got that thing going. So that gave all my players an opportunity to go and do something. So I think that because he was able to do that late in the year and it was such a big success, I really see next year's schedule being it's a go and it'll be great. It'll be really good. Also, is it just me or did I see Jerry D playing in one of those events? Sure did. Jerry got another exemption. Uh, they gave him an exemption last year and. Uh, yeah, sorry. He gave me an exemption last year to the event, the official McKenzie Tour event. Um, right. Now Jerry's not a bad golfer. I think he's about a you know a ten handicap at at the national. What, one um, of his daughters is really good though, right? Yeah, yeah, she can hit it. That's the one that was on the show with him. Yeah, I think I saw. I think I saw a video of her swing. It was pretty damn impressive. Yeah, he's posted some stuff. He's got a simulator in his house, and she hits some balls, and it's pretty good. Um, I haven't seen her post you know some serious scores in tournaments yet. Um, mm-hmm. but she's there. So that's all that really matters. You know, when it comes down to girls golf in Ontario, um, it's not a big population. So I was going to, I was going to ask, how is the competition in Ontario with the women's side? Uh, it's, it's, it's not strong. No, it's, it's really not strong. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I think from the, the girls side of things, I think that, uh, I just think it needs to grow in general. There needs to be a bigger pool of golfers. Um, and when there's more girls playing, I think that's just going to elevate all of the girls. Um, 
but I would say that, you know, this year in Ontario, I, I don't think that it, it was as strong as years past. Interesting. I like, okay. So, um, I don't even know how it is in Quebec to be completely honest. I mean, I don't really teach that many females here based in mm -hmm. Quebec. Uh, mm -hmm. the only girls I work with are professional abroad. So, um, mm -hmm. I don't, I, I don't really know what the situation is here, but I can't imagine it's much different to be honest. It's really not much different. I mean, I followed your future links, uh, Quebec future links last year and this and Ontario last year. And, um, <laughs> It's not too bad. You've got some stud boys over in Quebec, though. I mean, I think the number one ranked junior golfer in Canada is from Quebec. I think Laurent's from Quebec. Um, yeah, that's the one who just won the last Canada Live Series event, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, I just one of the one of the pros that are based in Quebec that I work with knows him on a personal level, and he said he's a very much like a DJ type character. He doesn't mm. have a lot of emotion, and he kind of just goes about playing his own game, and that's pretty much how he, he does it. So beautiful. Yeah. I hope he keeps it up. Seems like it That's seems awesome. to be on the right track so far. So he's, he's, uh, I, I've spoken to numerous people and they've all told me he's the biggest prospect coming out of, um, yep. my, my side of the world. Oh, for sure. I mean, he was on team Canada with one of my guys, uh, last year in Victoria. And, um, when I talked to the team Canada coach, it's like, so, you know, how did you get to your four players this year? And he's like, well, Laurent was a given, a shoe. And it was like easy. Um, and then Bennett, my guy was number one ranked player in Ontario. So he got in pretty quickly. Um, mm -hmm. So it was like, you know, he, he talked to me about the, I don't even want to say it was a recruiting process. It was like, this kid's just the real deal. We got to support him. Yeah, so, there, was, there um, was no real recruitment involved. It was just like, he needs to be yep, on the team. Yep, you're on. Yep. So I, I'm looking for big things from him. I'm not sure where he's going to go to college, um, but I'm sure it'll be somewhere big and, and fantastic. Well, the U.S., obviously, that's pretty much where everyone has to go if they want an opportunity. It is. It's so hard to get down there right now. Um, but yeah, uh, for, for oh, a guy dude, like him, that's it. Don't, don't tell me about that. I can't even get there right now with my players. So I'm having to quarantine when I come back. So it's a whole mess. But I'm like, I'm talking about NCAA golf. So I mean, oh yeah, that's that's another story. Yeah, you yeah. know, Division Two is not even happening. So when Division Two does happen next year, think of all the players that get to come back with their eligibility, and think of all the budgets that that, that don't exist because they haven't done anything. I mean, I don't think that NCAA golf from a, from a Canadians going down there to play NCAA golf, I don't think it's going to be normal until 2024. Interesting. Why, yeah. why three years of a delay? You think it's just going to take that long for the funding to come back? Okay, so let's look at, we'll call it 2000, uh, 2020, earlier this year when everything happened, uh, schools closed down. So the mm -hmm. 2020 kids couldn't finish their year. All right. So they were allowed eligibility wise to come back the next year, but then the next year's canceled, but there's still kids coming in as freshmen. So there's such a backlog of kids that have eligibility for all these teams that like the recruiting process almost is like stalled. So I, like right. I've partnered with Brendan Ryan from college golf, uh, uh, golf placement services down in the States. And he, he, basically takes care of all my golfers up here and finds them places to go. And he's saying that like the, the new entries, the, like the grade 12 kids now that are trying to go down or grade 11 kids that are trying to go down, there are no spots. Well, but, so some, something to think about for anybody who's listening, who's a parent of someone in Canada who wants to go down. So here, I'll, I'll say it first right here on your podcast. Canadian golf is going to go through the roof in the next three years when it comes to Canadian universities. So um, I am in Because of the right fact now. that they can't go to the U.S., basically. There's, there's going to be no space for them. Um, mm -hmm. So they, they won't be going down. They'll be looking back at Canada and saying, hey, where are we going to go up here? And when you look at the top schools, UBC, U Victoria, Simon Fraser, um, I've been on the phone with those coaches for a month now trying to talk about the progression for my grade 11 kids. 
Um, UBC looks like they're going to take one of my players for next year. Um, but I think Canadian golf is going to go through the roof. I think that these programs are not only going to have so many kids, they're going to start to get funded. So not only is UBC and UVic able to give scholarships, maybe the rest of the schools can too. Um, and because of that, I am, um, I'm looking to be the coach at Ryerson University here in Toronto. Oh, nice. Early, so, early, early call-outs. I like it. Oh, I, I really think it's going to be that different. Um, I think Whenever, a lot of the, Since when have we become a breaking news podcast here? <laughs> there you go. I know it. So <laughs> that's going to be a big change. So that's why I'm going for this Ryerson job. Uh, it's a volunteer position. It's not a paid thing um, at, at the moment. But I think that to get my foot in the door and kind of be involved in how this is going to grow pretty fast in the next four years, I can't wait. Um, and I got some really cool things to help, uh, to help really... Um, I don't even know how to say it, like to, to get some awareness to these schools and to these players, um, to coaches and players about, hey, this school's got a great program and great opportunity. And hey, coaches, like here are some great kids that, that would be good for your program. And I think those are the two networking connections that I think I'm going to be uh, working hard with for the next couple of years. Sweet. So uh, on an end note then, for anybody listening, um, Nick is the guy to go see if you have a kid who wants to take golf more seriously and wants to go into college here in Canada. Absolutely. I love the college recruiting process. I've been in it for so long. And my guys down in the States, they, I mean, they find scholarships by calling up and saying, hey, I've got a guy. How does this sound? Three minutes later, it's over. Because the, the network, the relationships are there. Um, but there's one more thing I wanted to talk about on the pod today. And I'm just going to talk about it quickly because I want to mm-hmm. kind of just drop a little hint. Um, I'm involved with a company called T-Squared Putters out of Buffalo. And uh, T-squared putters is the only putter out right now that our tagline is built, not bent. So you can't bend our putters. What we're looking to do is we have a fit case. We have a fitting process that gets you into the right loft, lie, offset, shaft length, flex, weight, all of that stuff customized for you for what you need to do. And it won't adjust if you have a back shop kid throw your bag into your stall or you toss them into the trunk late one night. Um, they're not going to bend. Um, our fitting process is so phenomenal. The fit case that we have is a beautiful silver uh, briefcase with 14 club heads in it, hosels, loft connectors, uh, shafts to go with them. And you sit there, similar to another version that's out there right now, where you build the putter for the golfer. And if you're finding through the fitting process that, hey, they need three degrees instead of two degrees, you unscrew the head, you put on a new head, and nothing changes. Same weight, same balance, same shaft, same grip. So, We've got some really awesome things coming out, and I'm glad I had the chance to kind of uh, give it a sneak peek right now. I'm in talks with some really big fitters in, the, in North America to, to get these fit cases into their centers. Um, as of January, we've been talking with uh, a prominent tour rep uh, who's going to be repping our product on tour. Um, he's already put it in hands of a couple players who say they really like it, so we're looking forward to that feedback come January. Um, but, uh, and as of next summer, we're going to be looking for some of those uh, smaller fitters, private clubs, club pros that are looking to offer a different type of putter fitting service for their members. Um, and what I love about this is not only does the T-squared thing really line up with Capto because they both go together, these are the low-hanging fruit for those club professionals at, at a club who may not do a whole lot of full swing lessons, whether they're not educated enough or there's a full-time teacher, they now could be the putter guy. They've got a putter fitting system, they've got a capto, and they can go to the green and they can tackle that low-hanging fruit because, I mean, I know you know it too, you go to a golf club, 
Nobody does putting lessons. No one takes putting lessons. And I don't know whether it's the pro shop not offering it and being aware of it, or people just don't think putting lessons are cool. But you get I would, a pro I would, shop. I would say it's probably a combination of the two. Not enough trust yeah. in the people to give the lesson and not enough interest from the other side of it. Right. And I think this little package is going to be able to give all these clubs and all these, these fitters and people the opportunity to engage with golfers on the green in a fitting learning lesson type of a environment where maybe they wouldn't have had those opportunities before. Right. I, I mean, it's good. So, it's going to only open up the doors for it. It is. So I'm stoked with T-Squared. I'm spending a lot of my time with them right now. We've got, uh, uh, they're based out of Buffalo. The, the parent company makes aerospace equipment and dental equipment. So, you know, when, when we want to putter, we kind of go to the next room, hand a guy a piece of metal and he builds it. So our manufacturing is right there on site. Um, I could probably have a putter from design in the morning to in your hands by the end of the day. Wow, that's pretty quick. Customized, stamped, painted, sight lines, all of that stuff. So um, the ability to, to put the, the right putter into somebody's hands, whether it's customized for them as a golfer or customized for them as a human, it's right there. Um, so I'm so excited about what these guys are doing there. Their 30,000 square foot uh, manufacturing plant in Buffalo just put in two Hawk simulators and they're building a putting green. So their fitting center inside here is going to be one of the best I've ever seen. Um, so what these guys are doing is on another level. Uh, they're very, very focused in how they want to do things. So it's not a thousand different things, one thing at a time. Um, and I'm really glad that I got the ear of these two guys. Uh, uh, T-squared putters. Um, I just kind of realized the other day, T-squared is kind of a play on circle T. But um, T-squared comes from our owner. Tony Tuber. Uh, Tony Tuber is the owner of the company. Um, he's currently in his freshman year at University of Tennessee. He's 18 years old and he started this company about a year and a half ago. Um, and he's given me the reins to run with this for the next little while to, uh, to help promote the awareness, to help get it out there um, until he graduates from school and decides to take this on his own. Um, but uh, Tony and his dad, Michael in Buffalo, have given me some awesome opportunity um, uh, I get to, to pick their brain and talk to them all the time. And the, the, the options for tweaking the system to make it better is not only fast and easy, um, but, but it, it gets done right away. Um, so this is a really cool thing that I'm into, and I'm glad I was able to kind of drop a little bit here on your pod. Yeah, dude, happy to, happy to promote something that has a lot of opportunity for growth here. So yeah. I like it. So I'm going to make sure that I, uh, I get you a putter. We're going to send you a putter. Um, we are working with your awesome sponsor, the best golf shaft in the world, Acra Golf Shafts. Uh, yeah, I, 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 lo I love Acra, dude. I have their shafts on my clubs right now. They're nice. I have had Acra in my bag for as long as I've known Gavin Robinson. Um, he is fantastic. I love what they've done. He, nobody in golf takes care of me better than Gavin and the guys. I absolutely love what they've done. Um, being able to test some of the stuff that they've had has been great. But, you know, being able to call Gavin up and say, hey, Gavin, I've got this new thing with T-squared. We need some T-squared branded putter shafts. What can we do? And Gavin's answer is, sure, easy. So I love it. I love the fact that we can put all this stuff together. So I'm going to send you a text here and you can give me some ideas on uh, what you'd like for a putter. And we'll make sure that we get that Acra branded shaft in there for you. Sweet, dude. I love it. Nice. Okay. Well, thanks very much for this opportunity. This has been awesome. I really appreciate it. I love your podcast. I I listen to it every chance I get. There's only four or five of them that I really listen to. And this is the, this is the only one on the full swing that I do listen to. So uh, kudos and congrats on what you and uh, 
and your bro have done on this. Thanks, big guy. And uh, yeah, dude, hopefully we'll get to meet up soon enough once this whole mess gets over. I hope so, too. All right, bro. Awesome. Have Thanks, a good one, man. Dude. Appreciate it. As usual, I'd like to thank our guests for joining us on the podcast today. It's really gracious of them to give us their time uh, to discuss, you know, all the things that we did. And hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Another thing I'd like to mention is that if there's anyone you want to hear on our podcast, whether that be someone in the golf industry or someone you think would be interesting to speak to, feel free to send us an email on both of our Instagram pages. That's Snack Giovanni Golf or Schkeen Golf. You can hit the DM button or send us an email. And honestly, just suggest whatever you'd like to hear, because at the end of the day, our job is to really create the best content that you would enjoy. And so if there's someone out there you want to hear us talk to or someone's story you think is interesting enough to be on the podcast that other people would enjoy listening to, just send us that suggestion and we would definitely appreciate receiving those and uh, give them all fair consideration. At the same time, I want to remind everyone that leaving us a review definitely helps our podcast. So if you can do that, that would be great. And if you want to see more of our content, you can find us on social media at the pages I just mentioned. And lastly, uh, for those of you who are curious, we do a lot of giveaways and uh, we'll be doing another one soon with Acra Golf and Aerotech. So stay tuned for that. Uh, it's going to be really cool with some uh, special edition gear that we're going to be giving away to you guys. So hopefully you enjoy that. Um, and with that, I'll just leave you all and have a wonderful weekend. Thanks again to our sponsors of the show, Callaway Golf, Trackman Golf, and Acro Golf Shafts. And don't forget, if you want to hit the ball 20 yards farther with the Super Speed Golf Training System, that can become a reality for you. Join over 700 tour pros by getting your set at superspeedgolf.com. Make sure to use the code SCHEEN, that's S-H-K-E-E-N, to receive 10% off your order.